The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Shapeshifter this evening is Tracy Davies. Tracy is Executive Director at Just Share. Was it Just Share? Or was it Just Share? A non-profit shareholder activism organization. She is a lawyer by training. Uh, she is an activist at heart. Uh, she studied her LLB at UCT. She then went to New York University. She's admitted as an attorney in South Africa, a solicitor in England and Wales, which must make you one of the most terrifying people ever to walk into an AGM uh, for the people on a board of directors, Tracy Davies. You come across as very calm, very quiet, very unassuming, uh, but your credentials suggest that you are made of stern stuff, made of steel, perhaps, and a steely resolve. Good evening, Bruce. Well, yeah, unfortunately, we haven't been able to walk into any AGMs for quite some time. Um, so we've had to rely on our uh, our voices uh, over the, the sort of, you know, the systems that have been used or else typing up questions at AGMs, which are then read out by company secretaries. So there's not much scope uh, in the recent, in the last couple of years to, to kind of deploy any sort of uh, intimidatory tactics in the AGMs. But have you, hopefully we're going to be getting back to that soon. Have you felt less effective as a result of not being able to be in the room and effectively staring into the whites of the eyes of the board members, executive team that you're seeking to get a result from? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, it's it's improved a little bit over the last couple of years and the ability to actually use your voice is not still not universal. Uh, you know, a lot of companies are still making shareholders or other uh, anyone who wants to ask questions at an AGM type type questions into a box and those questions are then read out normally inaccurately by uh, a company secretary <laughs> and of course if you or with the wrong emphasis or you know it's it's very exactly. infuriating um and of course then there there's an answer provided often by someone you can't see uh, you know just another disembodied voice somewhere in the background and then that's the end of it whereas of course at a physical agm it's it's possible to stand up and say hang on excuse me you haven't answered my question which is usually the case and to have a much more robust interaction with actual human beings when does your activism start tracy well, that's an interesting question because I would never have seen myself as an activist at a, uh, not even at a, at a young age or even in my, in my early professional life. But I think it probably started when I was doing my articles at Bowman Gilfillan in, well, as it was then, Bowman Gilfillan, the law firm in Johannesburg. And they had a kind of a pro bono exchange with the public defender's office. And I spent six months uh, as a public defender in the Hillbrow Magistrates Court. And I think that the what I saw there and what I had to do there uh, really, really made me realize and understand that I had a very strong sense of, of justice and a very strong desire to tackle injustice. And I think, you know, even though it was it was maybe a couple of years before I ended up as a as a proper activist at the Centre for Environmental Rights, I think that was probably the start of it. What was happening in Hillbrow that appalled you so much? You know, it was a it was a shocking and depressing, but also incredibly inspiring place. Uh, you know, I, I I rocked up on the first day. 
And I was, you know, 22, 23. I'd just started my articles. And I was handed a, a load of five files and told my first trial would start in 10 minutes. I never stood up in a court before. Um, I had something like 12 clients on that first day. Most of them couldn't speak English because there are obviously a lot of immigrants living in that part of, of Joburg. And it was absolutely terrifying. And it was just day in, day out, just this absolute incredible stream of humanity, you know, many of whom were, were there not because they were bad people or evil criminals, but because their life circumstances had lent, landed them in a place of, of, of huge difficulty. And, you know, I was, I was very, very, I found that very difficult to deal with. Yeah. But then it was also extraordinary to be in a place where, you know, the prosecutors, for example, who you think of as the mean and nasty people, we're really making every effort to to kind of do justice without being cruel to many of these people, and it was a it was an absolutely fascinating environment. Uh, and so uplifting in some ways, but depressing as in in many others. And again, shows you, I suppose, the sordid underbelly of a system that happens a million miles away from what the vast majority of us ever wish to experience. Um, and we, we, we talk about a dysfunctional legal system, but I mean, you've experienced that firsthand. When it came then to, you practiced as a lawyer, you practiced, uh, you, you, you studied at UCT, you went further at New York, you then spent some time in the UK, you are uh, qualified as a solicitor in England and Wales. When did you turn your attention to the rights and wrongs within the corporate sector, because I think that's where the majority of your focus lies now. Yes, that's correct. Well, you know, my, my husband and I left the UK and uh, we had just prior to that done, spent 10 months traveling around Southern and East Africa, sleeping on top of a Land Rover. And that was really when we realized that we could never live in England for the rest of our lives. And so when we came back, I joined the Center for Environmental Rights, which at that time was quite a new public interest environmental legal organization. And I was just fascinated and kind of really inspired by the work they were doing uh, on environmental justice in South Africa, particularly in the coal fields of Mpumalanga, which has obviously become more and more of a relevant issue as time has gone by. And I joined the CER and we started a corporate accountability program because the focus of their work and the focus of almost all social justice activists in South Africa is the state and the dysfunctionality of the state. But there's really very few people who focus on the corporate sector, which has as much of an impact as the state in many areas on, on rights and, and the dignities of, of South Africans. So we started looking at corporate reporting and what that said about these companies' environmental impacts. And how that stacked up against what we could see was happening on the ground and what the government reports on their environmental impacts said. And we discovered an extraordinarily vast uh, chasm of difference between what was being said and what was happening in real life. And that was really the start of my, uh, the kind of dawning realization for me that there was a huge space for, for corporate accountability activism in South Africa. What was the first case you picked and why did you pick it? Well, you know, I think Sassel is a, is a kind of enduring, uh, enduring, um, target for us and for, for environmental justice activists and corporate activists in South Africa. It's such a, 
you know, it's such an interesting corporation because of its history, of course, uh, in, uh, in the apartheid state. And because of what it does, uh, you know, if you're going to be uh, an activist and you're focusing on climate change, which is one of the areas we focus on at Just Share, climate change and inequality, then you really can't but target Sassel. It's a gigantic co- company. It makes fossil fuels out of fossil fuels and its transition plan involves more fossil fuels. It emits, uh, you know, more greenhouse gases than most small European countries on an annual basis. And it is a behemoth in an environmental sense, in an economic sense, in a social impact sense. And so it has always been the most obvious target for shareholder activism in South Africa. Can the corporate sector be trusted? And, and, and it's a broad question. I suppose there are some companies that can be trusted more than others, but ultimately the pursuit of profit is something upon which companies focus more than they do on the consequences of what that pursuit entails. And it does take a policing of their integrity, I suppose, to ensure that they do as little harm as possible while generating the returns for the pension funds and the shareholders that so desperately need the money. Yeah, I mean, I think you expressed that really well. You know, the whole of humanity is pretty much engaged in the pursuit of profit. So it's it's difficult to make arguments that many people perceive as being counter to the pursuit of profit, um, you know, and tackling fossil fuel companies in South Africa is a classic example of that. You know, the asset management industry in South Africa is absolutely loath to to kind of uh, to stick to its statements that it takes climate change seriously when it comes to actually engaging with the companies that they're invested in. And so, you know, your question is, can corporates be trusted? I think there's a vast array of, of corporates. And of course, we engage with, with many companies, with many different people within those companies. I think it's, it's also not even just about the companies as entities, but about different humans within those entities, right? They're made up of different people with different motivations and, and, and different approaches to these things. But overall, I would say that we haven't even begun to make a dent in that pursuit of profit above all else as 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 a as a planet not just <laughs> just share uh and i think what we've seen replace the the sort of blatant pursuit of profit narrative is a veneer of corporate responsibility and corporate citizenship around sustainability and esg but that veneer is not reflecting the reality it's been it's been layered on and plastered on over business as usual in the hope that that will will gain a bigger market share, and I think that that's uh, you know that's really the challenge we face now. Is when I started this work, you know, we were trying to convince people that sustainability and ESG was an important thing to think about. Now we don't have to do that, but we spend all of our time trying to shift the the truth from the from the, the greenwash. You know, yeah, the, the, that's the trouble. I mean, it's become such a tick box exercise, and it's become such a compliance exercise, and it's become an exercise of well, what can we get away with? Okay, let us make sure that this uh, ESG report looks as pretty as possible, rather than what are the consequences of what we do and how we run our operations and run our businesses, and how can we do it better? Um, and I, I wonder if the time hasn't come to think about this differently, Tracy. And I wonder whether or not we couldn't 
use the principles of capitalism to force capitalists to behave in a more responsible or to encourage them to behave in a more responsible fashion through, I don't know, using language and using tools that they understand rather than beating them with the sins that they commit, incentivize them somehow to behave better. Is that possible? Is it likely? Is it a pipe dream? Well, I think you need both. You know, the the concept of of linking ESG criteria and targets to executive remuneration is supposed to do exactly what you describe. And it certainly does. Have you ever uh, seen a remuneration report that you can honestly tell me you fully understand? You're a clever person. Not once. (laughs) Not once. No, absolutely not once. <laughs> and I think that's deliberate, to be honest. Of course I it is. It's, it's deliberate. Uh, look, w- the interesting thing we have seen is that certainly there's, we, we've seen a couple of, of companies where there's been a shift from zero ESG targets and remuneration to some, and it's always a small p- proportion, of course. Sure. It definitely puts a fire under people in terms of actually thinking about something that they might not have wanted to think about before. But it's not, the consequences are not significant enough and the, the targets are not robust or, uh, you know, meaningful enough. And there are ways around them. There are always ways to fudge, um, things that are not, fun- well, there are ways to fudge financial performance as well, as we've seen. So it is, it is tricky. And quite frankly, without regulation, we're not going to see a heck of a lot of change. But I don't think incentivizing, incentivization or incentives are the only way to change this. I think that harm is being done and there needs to be consequences for that. I was listening to a podcast today where someone was interviewing Desiree Fixler, the whistleblower at the DWS asset manager in Germany, you know, where they, they said they had 469 billion euros worth of assets under management invested in sustainable strategies. And it was just complete nonsense. They just completely made it up. Um, you know, and they're now being prosecuted, and that's the only way to change. No, no, there, there, there's got to be consequence. Absolutely, there's got to be consequence. But the trouble is, these blighters get away with it for so long because society is insufficiently vigilant. And I think your experience bears forth one of those reasons. And I mean, it was Vladimir Zelensky when he became president of Ukraine long before the Russian invasion. And he said to officials, don't put my photograph up in offices, put photographs of your own kids on your desk. And every time it comes to making a decision, look at a photograph of your child and say, does this decision improve the future for my child or not? And I wonder in these hallowed halls of corporations, whether that wouldn't be the most effective mechanism to get change going. To say to them, look, you, you you can convince yourself as much as you like that, you know, the actions that you take are for the good of humanity and humanity now. But if you're not considering the consequences of what you're doing now for your children and grandchildren, then you've really got to be questioning your deep sense of humanity. And I don't know whether or not that would have any effect at all. Or are some of these guys so far beyond the pale that they actually don't give a damn about long-term consequences of their actions, in your experience? Well, I think that what happens, because I, I'm also stunned and amazed that uh, that people who have children and grandchildren um, and you have you know major legacies to leave are not, uh, whether they be financial or otherwise, are often the people who don't seem to care about those legacies or the future. I think often what the problem is, uh, is that a lot of people think that if they've accumulated enough wealth, 
they can protect themselves and their children and grandchildren from any consequences associated with the impacts that we're seeing, um, you know, which obviously at the moment affect mostly uh, the poor and vulnerable. If you look at the climate impacts in the world, you know, they're affecting mostly people who can't who aren't resilient, who don't have the the capital and the resources to protect themselves from those. So I, my personal view is that that's, that's the feeling. It's like, look, yeah, okay, fine. You know, we, 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 if we just, but if we just do this big deal, you know, then I'll have enough in the bank. It may be a, a you know, a coal deal or a, an oil and gas deal, but then I'll have enough in the bank that even if climate change does destroy everything, I'll, I'll be okay, you know? And yeah. uh, I, I don't think that people have sufficiently grasped the kind of systemic economic implications of these global risks uh, for, for their businesses, for their investments, for their future of their families, for their families' future prosperity. You know, it's very much a sort of all, all for me at the moment. Uh, and, 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 and let's pretend that we care, but not actually do anything that's going to make a difference now. How do you have an impact? I mean, do you feel that your impact is sufficient? And I, I'm asking you to judge yourself in this, and 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 I wonder how frustrating it must be sometimes to be listened to and not heard. Yeah, I mean, of course, we haven't had enough of an impact. I mean, globally, the you know, if you just take climate change and you take the the activism around climate change at a at a shareholder shareholder level in relation to the oil majors at a government level in relation to climate regulation you know we've we've been doing this for for decades and emissions continue to rise i mean there's no doubt that that is a massive failure and it's it's extremely frustrating and i guess where we where we derive our hope from is that in our interpersonal reaction interactions we do see signs of change they're not yet big enough to shift the system, but we do see signs of change. We do get feedback that indicates to us that what we're doing has an impact, never enough of an impact, of course. And it's incredibly difficult to judge success in the nonprofit sector because you are not judging that by virtue of financial performance or wealth accumulation. And, you know, I think that's why a lot of, a lot of nonprofit leaders eventually just kind of burn out and disappear because your goal is immense and your time horizon is endless. So you've got to just take it day by day, take the wins, you know, in a spirit of, of hope. And, and there is definitely, there's change. We, we see change in awareness. And that's, of course, the first step yeah. in the business community in South Africa broadly around these impacts definitely it's changed from what it was five years ago particularly around climate change and there are some people who are doing good stuff in 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 the world of business in south africa unfortunately it's just not enough of them to shift the dial at the moment and so we have huge amounts of work to do and that, this is why I think we have to think about it differently. I mean, a, you know, a different approach. We can shout, we can scream, we can nail ourselves to the railings of buildings, we can glue ourselves to Renoirs, we can do all sorts of stuff. But until we can somehow find a motivation for human beings within these corporations to change their behaviors, we don't get a significant amount of change that would actually alter outcomes for our common good. And that worries me, Tracy. I'm sure it worries you too. It does. It really does. And that is also why, you know, governments are so important in this space. I think, 
In South Africa in particular, we tend to to give the corporate sector a free pass because you know there are plenty of things to worry about when it comes to to our government. But it's important to also understand the interaction between these big corporates and government and their impact on government policy. And I think you can really see that in the energy space in South Africa. You know, the most powerful companies in this country are companies that don't want a green energy transition. They want to stick with fossil fuels. And so, you know, we've got to hold them accountable as much as we hold government accountable. And to my mind, you know, each each tiny um, point that you make uh, to an executive or to a board of directors or to an institutional investor that demonstrates that gap in accountability and that that moral hiatus really between what is being said and what is being done hopefully gets us a tiny bit closer to a bigger understanding, first of all, of what has to happen, but also to a much more robust regulatory response, response from government, you know, where we say, right, we need a strong carbon tax. That's the only thing that's going to incentivize fossil fuel companies to change. You know, we need a combination of regulation and corporate behavior change. And that has to come. The pressure can't just come from a tiny activist organization like ours. Sure. You know, it's got to come from the financial sector. And that's what we're not seeing enough of yet. Tracy Davies, thank you so much indeed for joining us this evening. Tracy Davies is director at Just Share. She's an activist, an activist with purpose.